Welcome everybody to another edition of AML Now by ACAMS. I'm your host, John Byrne, and in today's edition, we're actually going to talk about a particular series of issues that are so important, not just to the AML community, but to society in general, and that's de-risking and financial inclusion as it relates to charities, humanitarian groups, and other uh, nonprofit organizations. I had the opportunity to sit down with Kay Ganan, who is the director of the Charity and Security Network. And it's an organization that has been working with the World Bank and ACAMS for the past year and a half, uh, trying to deal with, frankly, a challenge that I think some people expected um, post 9 11 and the focus, the correct focus on terrorist financing, but perhaps didn't realize the impact that it would have on uh, day-to-day activities of individuals, victims, if you will, in conflict zones and other areas around the world. So Kay was kind enough to walk us through what the organization is about, sort of some of the key issues, and for me, next steps. I know you're going to find this both interesting and valuable, so sit back and enjoy. So, Kay, the, fir- the first question I have regarding the Charity and Security Network, where does security come from? Why is that part of what you do? And tell us a little bit about the organization, when you were formed, what your membership is comprised of. But I am very curious, because what we're going to talk about today is uh, charities and why uh, the financial sector has to sort of be on guard regarding security issues. So obviously the, the organization is right up our alley, and I know that because we've obviously worked together. But why security? And tell us a bit about the organization and, and the membership. Okay. Well, a number of nonprofit organizations got together and launched the Charity Security Network uh, at the end of 2008. Um, after working together uh, over the years after the 9-11 attacks uh, and passage of the Patriot Act on the ways that those national security provisions impacted uh, the nonprofit sector in the United States and ultimately uh, also outside the U.S. And we saw that there appeared to be a number of unintended consequences that were creating problems for charities, especially those that work uh, in conflict zones or, or do international programming. And so we thought that we could uh, work to inform people about these problems and find ways to address them. So you, so this goes way back. So you guys identified after 9-11, as we did in the financial sector, we, we always knew that there were challenges regarding banking charities of different, different stripes because there are examples of charities that obviously were used either intentionally or unintentionally for terrorist activity, but as far back as 2008, very inter- I, I guess I didn't even realize that. Makes sense. In a way, it's sad that we're in 2018 and you still <laughs> need to be around and still need to have this organization. So how, how are you guys funded? Is it pure membership? Uh, you said you were created by a, a number of uh, not-for-profits. A How number you... of non-profits, uh, but we're funded by a combination of membership dues mm-hmm. uh, of organizations and foundation grants. Okay. 
So uh, individual members of civil society uh, and nonprofit employees and board members and leaders uh, are members, uh, and they don't have to pay dues, but organizations pay dues, and then uh, a number of foundations have supported us. Um, they're affected too. That That's... Uh... That's very interesting. And obviously, we're learning more about your world through the work that we'll talk about in a bit that ACAMS and the World Bank has been doing with a lot of help from your yourself and your colleagues. And I think that's really been a an eye-opener to many of the banks. I mean, I still remember the very first uh, event we had where we, we hadn't yet decided on focusing on humanitarian groups, we, we had it broader. We was just done de-risking, let's bring in all these stakeholders. As you know, you participated. But what's, what resonated with me then and still does today, and I'll, I'm terrible with names, but a gentleman from, I believe, the Syrian Relief Group, but clearly who's from a Middle Eastern Relief Group, who stood up and said, you know, part of the problem is clearly getting banking relationships. But the other problem is, even if we have those relationships, the delays and obstacles to getting the funding that we need can result in people dying. And, um, you know, it sounds hyperbolic, but it's not. It's obviously true. But, you know, you don't, you think about, okay, these organizations need banking services, but then you don't really think about it. We do now. We don't really think about, um, you have these banking services, but if the uh, getting those services are delayed for whatever reason, additional due diligence, uh, fear, whatever, it obviously has practical effects, and, and especially in conflict zones that need electricity and water and hospital supplies and all of that. So I think that element, um, which we're all sort of learning on the fly, needs to be probably expressed as much as just getting the services, right? Yes, and that those are some of the unintended consequences uh, that these national security laws have created over time. And it, it's uh, with banking services, and it's also with general some legal restrictions on uh, what charities can do. Uh, for example, it's uh, illegal to pay a road toll uh, in an area controlled by a group on the terrorist list. Uh, so after the... Uh, tsunami in Sri Lanka where the Tamil Tigers who are on the terrorist list controlled territory and they were charging fees for people to enter the areas where the people in need were. Uh, but that's an illegal transaction under sanctions law. But now we also are dealing with uh, banking problems because the banks are also, we're all subject to these same laws and we all have the same problems with uh, lack of clarity and with lack of room for any residual risk or de minimis uh, violations and transactions. You know, that's interesting. I, obviously, there's historically been issues of corruption in general around the world. That's what the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was designed to yeah. deal with. So in, in some places, um, tolls or bribes, right, to get, to get, to get your uh, imports off a, off a container, uh, cargo off a container in whatever... Uh, pier or whatever uh, port you're in, you, know, you got you to gotta grease the palms, right? So we, in this country, we've gone back and forth to, to enforce that, to recognize that, well, it's part of doing business, but we don't want to encourage it. I hadn't really thought about things like, like you've mentioned, but it's very, very similar and, and still extremely challenging, clearly against the law, 
clearly something we, you not only want to discourage, but you want to make sure U.S. entities aren't engaged in it. But if you don't do it, again, people die, right? Yeah, it's a it's a real conundrum, and there are, aren't any clear, simple answers. But there are a lot of cases where uh, there are things that can be done, and where access to civilians in need in these conflict zones uh, or uh, the ability of human rights defenders and democracy building groups to get into communities and work with local uh, communities is uh, it, it's possible if they can get the funds through to not just pay for supplies, fuel for hospital generators and things like that, but also for the local organizations they're working with for their staff um, in order to build out projects uh, that may be like digging a well mm -hmm. or uh, helping create a, a livestock cooperative or, and things like that. Um, so the whole model for the organization is to deal high level and specifically with that issue, the issue of non-for-profits non or non-profits getting, um, uh, not being able to get funding or support or what have you. So that's, so your membership, again, foundations, individual organizations, of various type sizes, are there limits in terms of like the regions of the world or you're open to... Uh, we're open to all civil society. Yeah. Um, we are primarily focused uh, on the United States nonprofit sector, okay. uh, and so U.S. sending sending funds overseas. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and but we do have members from other parts of the world, from uh, the United Kingdom, uh, Belgium, Jordan, uh, um, Nigeria, Brazil, uh, Indonesia, Australia. So, uh, because these problems are global, sure, um, oh, sure, and so, but we're primarily made up of U.S. organizations, and includes grant making foundations, and the Council Foundations is on our advisory board. Uh, development humanitarian organizations, uh, Interaction, which is a, an association of those groups, is also on our advisory board. Uh, the Alliance for Peace Building, other kind of uh, trade groups for different kinds of nonprofit programming, but we also have individual organizations, everything from a very small uh, one-person humanitarian program that operates uh, programs right now with refugees in Greece uh, to uh, enormous uh, international NGOs with big staff and multiple field offices around the world. So, Do you have peers because you obviously say you have foreign entities that are involved with the organization here. Do you have groups like the Charity and Security Network in other countries that are similar organizations or not really? Not really. Because um, they, they don't have the same. I mean, you were created because it's a response to the, to the Patriot Act and all those issues. That's right. So, that, so that's really. And, the and there's some scholars have noted, uh, at least in terms of the donor, Western donor countries where uh, aid money is mostly going out rather than coming in, that uh, the United States has the most restrictive legal standards. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest misconception that bankers have about NPOs? Uh, no, again, I've learned a lot in the past year and a half working with you, you folks. Uh, clearly things I, I had no idea about. You know, I, I, had, I came from the same space that many bankers did, that um, some charities have been, again, used wittingly or unwittingly. 
So they're considered risky, sometimes high risk, by uh, the regulators and by law enforcement. So you have to react to that somehow. So you obviously, can you manage the risk? Can you mitigate the risk? Or if you can do neither, do you simply bypass and say, we're not going to engage at all? What's the, in that sort of frame of mind, before you, you know, dive in and learn about all the due diligence that actually does get done, what's the biggest misconception that a financial institution has about the sector that you represent? Okay. I think it's just that, that uh, there's a perception that because charities aren't making a profit that they're not uh, fiscally responsible or uh, capable of doing robust due diligence and don't have... Uh, the kind of internal controls that are needed. And in, in some ways, um, I've, I've learned a lot about banks also in the last few years and learned a lot more about the burdens that are on banks and the kinds of things they have to look for and understanding why. And I, I can see now that a lot of uh, charities are regulated by the Internal Revenue Service in, in order to be tax exempt, uh, and which is what your funding depends on, you have to demonstrate to the IRS every year that your funds are used exclusively for charitable purposes. And that's the focus of nonprofit governance. It's always traditionally aimed towards that, making sure assets are only used for charitable purpose, which by definition excludes terrorism. But it's packaged in that way to meet the IRS regulatory expectations. It's not packaged in a way that looks like AML uh, counterterrorist financing. Uh, methods, even though the due diligence measures may be essentially the same. So there's, uh, there's I, th I think, maybe a, a gap there in, the, in terms of the way things are framed that uh, over time we're seeing more and more how to present what we do as, as also, it not, doesn't just protect charitable assets for charitable purposes, but helps uh, prevent diversion. And, since 9-11 uh, and with the growth of uh, terrorism and non-state art grooms were well, charities have had to uh, adapt specifically for uh, dealing with these conflict zone situations. There's, uh, in some places, counter-terrorist financing is the least of their problems because their staff are being kidnapped and killed uh, or their, their convoys are being hijacked. And so they've had to become very robust and also very creative. Uh, in the way that they do due diligence. That's an interesting point that um, if you look at process from a different perspective, so the process, I'm going from point A to point B, but I'm not doing it because I'm trying to protect something. I'm doing it because I'm simply, um, I, I simply need to travel. But then you say, oh, but I'm also being careful. So somebody's looking at you going from point A to point B, thinks, oh, you're just going to a location, and, and what you're saying here is, um, which is positive, uh, they are both doing due diligence and other um, sort of review processes, other vettings, to make sure that they're doing things for charitable purposes. But some of those same tools, some of those same skills, certainly can help detect and prevent um, financial crime or terrorism. So yes. Yeah. So that's interesting, and it's it's trying to speak the same language, right? So as you learn more about the financial sector, the financial sector learns more about your sector. People can can uh, sort of talk the same language, which I think is something that you're right has been um, has been missing. So um, the biggest thing that I hear about charities is 
how do you know your donor base? So I know the charities differ. I mean, I, I get that. So you can't make a one-size-fits-all answer. But generally speaking, if a banker sits down with you and you, and you say, I'm representing uh, th this charity that was created for the sole purpose of dealing with a horrific act, a, a tsunami, a hurricane, an earthquake. And so we're set up just for that. And so I say, okay, how do you know your donor base? So if, if you were to answer that question, what additional information from the banker would you need to answer that, I don't want to say intelligently, but accurately? So, Because that's one of the things that I know that they struggle with is because they get criticized from the regulators uh, that say, well, you know, you got X amount of dollars from, from donors, but how do you know? Now, the bankers struggle with that same concept, by the way, just from transactions, right? Because the money laundering moves... I can launder money, put it in a bank A, somebody puts it in a bank B, and it comes into bank C. It's still the same money, but bank C has no idea it came through. I mean, they may know they, they may know technologically it came through B and C, or A and B, rather, but they're not going to know how it originated. So same thing here, the donor base. So what, what would you tell me if I say, I need to know, have a better understanding of your donor base and how you, quote, vet your donor base or document your donor base? Okay. Most, most nonprofits have multiple funding sources, um, and one, one for many is grants from private foundations uh, or corporations, and those have to be reported to the IRS on your annual uh, Form 990 uh, right. return. So there's a formula that the IRS has called the public support test, and in order to be a public charity, you have to show that no one donor has uh, a disproportionate influence over the organization by virtue of the amount they've given you. Oh. And if you fail that test, you're considered a private foundation and all of a sudden your due diligence obligations become much, uh, much more burdensome. So, so is that a percentage they look yes. at? So somebody's not on the board, but they've given 60% of the funding, then that puts them in a different bucket than if it was... That's right. Okay. That's right. So, so that the board has to be able to make independent deter, uh, determinations about programming and spending uh, based on the mission of the organization, and, and the donor can't dictate it. So that's that's one safeguard that we yeah. have, and we and so we and we have to compete for those foundation grants, so we know who those are. Um, the the other is grassroots fundraising, right. and this is where the complications come in uh, from the AML CFT viewpoint. And you can put a link on your website. We have one. Anyone can go to that link and click and use a credit card right. and donate. Yep. Um, the, our, our fiscal agent screens donor names against the, the public lists. Um, but that's, that's all you You screen against OFAC. And that, right, yeah, right, the SDN right. list, yeah, sure, uh, sure. The com all the combined sure. sanctions programs. Um, but otherwise, when we, uh, when organizations generally do targeted fundraising, so you may not know every individual that's giving to you. If you ho uh, host a big dinner or an event and you pass the hat, you know your target community. Yeah. You don't know who put in how much. But do you have to document that? Do you, do you have to show, I, you know, we had 100 people? 
come to this event or no? I mean, it, it depends on, that's generally local government regulation. Mm -hmm. So it varies. Okay. Uh, okay. I'm from Kentucky and in Louisville, there's a, a public solicitation rule that nonprofits have to comply with and it protects the public from fraud. What about cash versus credit cards? Uh, depend? Does it depend? I guess. Cash is, uh, non-charities will collect cash sure. these days. It's, uh, yeah. Credit cards are used a lot more. Right, um, right, and, right, right. But, and the cash deposits uh, have become more of a problem for charities because they're often coincide with religious holidays or something like that. So, uh, it, or the end of the tax year, there be more, or you may have an event, an annual dinner once a year that happens to be in May and all the, you have this unusually large deposit of cash and one, only once a year and it looks funny from the banker's point of view. So that's the kind of thing where we're advising nonprofits when you have kind of cash deposit to uh, or a special event or say Ramadan uh, in the Muslim community where they're giving to charities to sure. let the bank know this is a special occasion and this is the targeted community you know that has given so you have a, a donor a donor base you understand your base either individual foundations or entities or um, communities if people give by credit card you know who they are yeah it's interesting because what, what I would say to you if that was causing a bank concern, I'd say, well, the, the bank is banking seasonal um, places like ski, you know, ski, ski areas or summer places, and those areas, even if they're open all year round, are going to do a lot more activity mm -hmm. in their season than they do other seasons. So why is that any different than a charity, as you just pointed out, end of the year, holidays? You know, if you understand how charities work, depending on the focus of the charity, that's logical to me that you would get more during religious holidays or other holidays by yeah. charities than you would other times of the year. So the bank shouldn't be skeptical about the larger amounts at different times of the year because that's that comes in with know your customer, and, and that would just make sense to me. So that uh, what you said meant, meant perfect sense, but I would question a banker that would think, gee, that's suspicious. That's not suspicious if they understand the work of the charity, right? So, right, but yeah. they have to... There has to be a human being that under, to understand that work, and to some right. extent, I think these get red flagged through automated processes. Of course, of course. But still, and, at the end of the day, the AML officer has to be doing the, the know your customer protocols. And so a lot of that's tech. That's right. But when you pull it, that's then you, you pull it, and then you make a decision, oh, we're not putting it in the high-risk bucket because now we understand yes. that client base. But what I've learned uh, over the last year or two is, and uh, most often, I think that's probably the way it is with the charities bank, but the correspondent bank doesn't have that information necessarily, right. or they don't know that charity, and so often it's the correspondent bank that will uh, have to stop, or that will stop the transaction, and they do they can't rely on the retail bank due diligence. They do their own, and that's often where things get get hung up or delayed. Yeah, you know. Um Talking about this just gets me to thinking how counterintuitive it is that you folks have had to struggle for so long based on post-9-11 activity for this simple reason. When charities have been involved in terrorist activities, it's because they have funded terrorist activities, right? Or they've done <laughs> something direct. And so if you've done your vetting with the donor base, you've checked out what the charity is, um, and the charity has been around for X amount of years, and then they, 
they slide and go do something a terrorist act, there's no way you would be able to prevent that, right? The the way in which I guess it gets challenging is these organizations that are designed to help in conflict areas or for quote religious unquote purposes, and they're fairly new, you know, so a new charity that you haven't heard before. I could see those being more of a challenge to make sure that the bank doesn't bank something that's going to cause problems than sort of age-old charities that have been around for forever. They shouldn't be struggling at all to get uh, financial services or to get those services done in a timely fashion. I mean, no, it, I know they do struggle, but from, from being in the financial sector, that shouldn't a track happen. record yeah. should be a part happen. of the risk calculus. Exactly, exactly. So that's crazy. So I want to make sure we talk about where we are today. So I, we've alluded to this, um, the work that... Uh, that uh, practitioners in both the private and public sector have been doing with uh, the World Bank and with ACAMS, with the regulators, and I'll summarize and kind of throw in your your thoughts about it. So we had that meeting a year ago, uh, or maybe as far back as 2016. We had a, we had that meeting where we sort of looked at de-risking and decided it was a consensus, no question. We decided that your community was one we wanted to fix. We, out of all the communities, we know that the MSBs struggle, by the way, but, and I still think that MSBs need some assistance as well. Uh, and I think they'll, you know, there'll be some direction that helps them there. But I think there was no disagreement that if your humanitarian group is prevented from helping wherever around the world or wherever in the U.S. Uh, to get funds to help with the things we talked about, medical supplies, electricity, water, or just simply get money to victims of conflicts, uh, that we should we should make that as efficient um, as possible. And so we all agreed that that would be our focus. So since that time, there's been a couple of work streams, as you know, that because you and I are involved in some of these work streams. One that uh, is more tangible to the audience that will listen to this from the banking sector, and then we'll talk about the other audiences. The um, bank agencies since 2005 have put together an exam manual in the U.S. It's the FFIEC AML BSA exam manual. And basically, it's a public document, but it's really what examiners need to do as they go in and assess and test a bank's system. So those that has been public since, again, 2005. Uh, we decided, and you brought it to our attention, we meaning the AML community, that the descriptions in a, it's a 300-page manual, right? The descriptions in that book regarding uh, NPOs were bare bones, to say, to say the least, right? They basically were a couple of paragraphs, talked about it being risky, and gave no real direction. So right. what we thought with your assistance, we said, you know, it's, it's not changing the law, it's not changing the regulation, but in terms of the environment, if we could be more transparent about what NPOs are and do and provide uh, and what the banks should be able to expect, uh, that perhaps the examiners would be lighter, my words, with a bank regarding banking NPOs by saying, if a bank said, look, we've followed what we believe are the proper protocols. We've done our vetting. We've done our assessing. We've checked documentation. We want to do this relationship, and we think the risk is not, either it's not high or it's high, but we can manage it. And so I think changing the manual 
doesn't change everything overnight, but it's a positive. So with your, your help and the help of AML ex experts, we provided recommendations to the bank agencies, and they're, they're considering it as we speak. So that's one work stream, and hopefully we'll see some uh, evidence of it being successful sometime in 2018. The work streams uh, that, that you're involved in deal with, my words, sort of the technology part of this. Talk a bit about that and why you think there'll be value uh, once we, we conclude with whatever we put together in that work stream. And describe it a bit. Okay, well, given the customer due diligence obligations that banks have, as we've become aware of that, we saw a similarity to what private foundation due diligence are supposed to do for their nonprofit grantees. Uh, very similar. And the nonprofit sector has developed a streamlined tool uh, for private foundations to use for that due diligence purpose. Uh, it's operated uh, by a group called TechSoup Global, a U.S.-based group. It allows, it allows nonprofit organizations that are based outside the U.S. to submit organizational documents and financial accountability information all online uh, into a database. TechSoup Global uh, charges fees to the foundations, and those subscription fees are used to pay uh, staff lawyers who review all this information render a legal opinion about whether or not these charities are legit, basically the equivalent of a U.S. charity. Then all that information is in the database. All the foundation has to do is go log in, look it up, and they can make their own judgment. So it skips over a lot of the kind of steps uh, that foundations had to take before. And it is also good information because it's done by people who understand and know the nonprofit sector. So we. So we talked to TechSoup Global. They said this technology could be adapted to the banking context. And so we are now looking at ways that we can basically create a special know your nonprofit customer repository that would provide the best available information uh, on charities, nonprofit organizations uh, for banks to use. And it would be quick and uh, streamlined and uh, I think it might avoid a lot of problems. And because this uh, repository would be global, you would hopefully have the sending charity in the repository as well as the counterparty receiving charity on the other end in Jordan or Brazil or wherever so that you could check them both. Because often it's not the sending charity due diligence is, uh, being in question, it's the small nonprofit and, and on the receiving end. That's great. Um, the other work stream it relates to uh, communication, training. One of the things, and you know, something like what we're doing today, is explaining to the AML community writ large, meaning regulators as well as the private sector, that NPOs have a certain way that they operate, that if we better understand the way that they operate, we should be able to, as you just pointed out earlier, um, fit them within, uh, you know, fit them within our customer base, and know that they've done due diligence. That perhaps for other reasons, to prove that things were for charitable purposes, but should help us understand uh, the donor bases, the activity, all the things that we need to, to to prove to a regulator that 
risky or not, it's ma both manageable and important to do. So I'm really looking forward okay. to that. And then, as we both know, um, the U.S. Congress is looking at, uh, in both the House and Senate side, they're looking at the AML infrastructure, if you will, that's been in place for 30-plus years, and potentially making some changes in a, in a whole host of areas. And in this particular area, meaning the area where uh, entities don't get financial access and they're financially excluded for a variety of reasons, Kay and I and others have been pushing Congress to, to look at what are the elements that cause that. So we're hoping that there'll be uh, some positive movement, whether it's legislation that uh, offers some specific direction or reporting that comes out that further clarifies what the not just what the problem is, but what the potential solutions are. I think there's some, uh, there's some, there's some room for optimism. I think there's clearly, because it's finally out there, we're finally talking about it. So um, I know all those things are important to you folks, but um, if, if you were going to look ahead to the end of 2018, what to you would be a successful movement in, in the space that we're both in right now in, 2018, in, the, you know, in the fall? In the fall, if we see if now you know we could all say legislation moves, that's all great, but just some some movement where your members say, you know what, not the banks are opening up, but there seems to be more dialogue. I guess that would be probably the best thing one could hope for. Or what else would you like to see? Well, I'd like to see the bank examination manual revision completed by the end of the year because right. I think that would uh, give banks and nonprofits a great deal of relief. Uh, if the examiners are then trained and implemented properly, so that, that's a, a big one. And I also, but I also think it's important for Congress to take a, a comprehensive look at, at the AML CFT regime and acknowledge this de-risking problem exists and look at the drivers and the possible solutions, as you mentioned, uh, because there may not be uh, necessarily a clear statutory provision in the BSA that would right. snap and eliminate de-risking. But I think uh, a demonstration of understanding and desire by Congress to address this problem uh, would be really helpful for everybody. You know, I think it's, it's both super complicated and simple. The simple is because no bank examiner wants to be charged with missing something. They err on the side of high risk, high risk, high risk. No banker wants to be in that position either, whether it's litigation from victims who feel that they should have done more due diligence with the charity or the charity itself you know, commits some heinous act that nobody would have foreseen. And then the bank looks at the financial relationship, and let's face it, banks are not utilities, so they, they, they need to make profits. So they look and say, is it worth the the financials to do the due diligence and know at the end of the day that may not be enough. So that that's part of it. So I, I think also if we could give some credit to uh, financial institutions somehow, and I, I'm not even referring to a tax credit necessarily, but some positive reinforcement by the examiners regarding banking these entities, um, I think that would go a long way. A lot of times the AML professional will tell me, I'm doing this because I believe in it. 
But it would be nice to hear occasionally from a regulator, and you do hear it sometimes, so I don't want to be fair here, um, that, you know, what the work you're doing in this space or that space is really uh, both proactive and really helping. And the extent that you may have made a mistake or two in policy, we're not going to we're not going to go there. We're not going to focus on that. So I think that's something that if you asked an examiner one-on-one, they'd tell you that they agree with that, but sometimes they think it's hard because it's not even a bureaucracy, but it's such a, 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 a formal infrastructure that we have regarding examinations. And again, you don't want to miss something. So the more we can talk about this um, to, to the broader community, whether it's you know congressional offices, policymakers of any kind, whatever, I think there's going to be value. Before I go, um, Charity and Security Network, um, I'll, I'll mention later what their website is. If somebody listened to this today and they're not from a foundation, they're not from a charity, they're from a bank, uh, and they want to join, is that possible? And sort of, uh, you don't have to say specifically, the breadth of your membership uh, is what? Is it mainly those foundations and individuals, or do you have people in law firms or other places that say, we believe in that too, and we want to be part of this? We, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I think I would love to have a banking member who met the criteria for non-charitable uh, membership, okay. which is basically experts who advise or assist nonprofit organizations. So we do have law firms yep. uh, and some accountants uh, and, and academics. Uh, and if there's a banker uh, who is, uh, wants to be helpful, they fit that criteria. You might want to adjust the criteria a little. People that actually believe in your mission, you know, you might. That's might, right. <laughs> you might want to think about that because you you could get uh, people that would join for that reason alone. We we do a lot of work with Polaris, the anti-human trafficking organization, and they get uh, donations from all walks of life. Obviously, not just people that are in that space. So yes, just you know something to something to think about. And uh, also, I know it'll be on your, it's on your website. You've got some really good. Uh, descriptions of some of the hearings that I read through. You've done some studies in the past year, year and a half. There's one in particular that focuses on this. You want to give me two minutes on that? Very quickly, we did, uh, published in February 2017, uh, an extensive report documenting the, the significant problem that charities are having with access to financial services. We did a scientific sample survey uh, and used information from nonprofits IRS filings so that we have an empirical right. uh, answer to a lot of questions that it shows the extent two-thirds of U.S. organizations that do international work have had some form of banking problem, primarily transferring money overseas, but also uh, secondarily just keeping accounts open. Uh, and there are a number of coping mechanisms that they've had to employ including 42% that have had to carry cash in order to get money to their programs, and nobody's and happy about from, that. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> so this is another reason for Congress to take note. We, if you exclude people from the financial system, they'll have to find another way. So let's keep us all in. That's great. Uh, Kate, thanks for the time. I know that this has uh, obviously been a long-standing mission of your organization, and obviously we're happy now that the AML community is yeah. much more aware than they were Two years ago, obviously. So I think that's a positive. I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more optimistic as, as we talk to people. Like I say, the regulators have been open to what we've sent them. It doesn't mean they'll take everything, but I, I really thought that was good. And I know that we've been both at meetings 
with banks that have walked through how they operate and what the challenges are, and regulators attended that. So uh, I don't want this to be seen on my end, not, not your end, that it's always a constant harping on the regulators being um, opaque. So it's not that. I think sometimes, again, it's fear of missing problems, and they don't want to do that. It's understandable. But they have been very open uh, to dialogue and work and participation. So I think that alone gives me some hope. And, and with all the work you guys are doing, maybe we can come back in twenty eight, the end of 2018 and say, look at all these things we've succeeded in. Well, maybe that's something that's we can right. shoot for. <laughs> so, thanks again. Thank you. So clearly a lot of activity and a lot more work needs to be done. I think it's uh, important to know that uh, both Kay and I are optimistic that there can be improvements in an area where banks are making risk decisions all the time but need some assistance from the regulators, frankly, to give the banks the deference they need to mitigate those risks. Because if that doesn't happen, then groups like charities, uh, companies like MSBs, get in some cases irreparably harmed. Um, so hopefully you'll this has uh, resonated with everybody out there, and you'll get engaged and involved. There, there have, uh, as we mentioned, there was a, a hearing on de-risking in the House in February. Uh, supposedly, there will be more hearings that may include the regulators. And frankly, another important element here, law enforcement. So um, hopefully, you'll stay engaged and involved through your institutions or through your associations. A couple of additional points, uh, the Charity and Security Network take a look at their website. They have some really excellent information on uh, membership, on their newsletters, on their resources. So take the time to uh, look at all the uh, information that they provide. In terms of ACAMS going forward, want to make sure you mark your calendars because uh, ACAMS is happy to note that uh, Ken Blanco, the new director of FinCEN, will be the keynote speaker on Monday, April 9th at the ACAMS Money Laundering Conference. It's their 23rd annual held in Hollywood, Florida. So for more information, go on the ACAMS uh, website. For more information on financial inclusion, take a look at the information provided uh, on the resource page. Um, uh, Carla Monterosa and her staff do a great job of updating the information that's so necessary in a whole host of areas uh, for AML practitioners. And there's a lot of good information, reports, white papers on the website regarding financial access, financial inclusion and a number of other areas uh, that are important to us as practitioners, including things like human trafficking and uh, elements like that. So what I would say is um, going forward, if you're interested in these topics, interested in these issues, reach out to ACAMS to participate. If you're not a member and but do participate with uh, committees at the World Bank, take advantage of what they provide as well and, uh, and, and um, be engaged there. Uh, but I think this is an area where we can actually, we can actually make some some improvements. We can help conflict zones that need critical have critical needs for water, utilities, medical supplies, things like that. I just think it's just so important that we in our community step up and try to work these issues. I also say, and I think I did say during the interview with Kay, that uh, if you speak to the regulators, and many of us have, they are committed to a efficient AML BSA process, and they certainly don't want to see any of their decisions result in the loss of funds, remittances, 
or any sort of transfer of value to areas that need that uh, need that information or need that need those finances. So um, I think it, we're all committed to this. It's just a question of continuing to work together. So again, hopefully this topic has resonated with you, and the good comments and um, strong comments made by Kay will will help push you along here. I'm John Byrne. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.